Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have on the show Bryn Saito. Bryn is the author of two books of poetry and is the co-founder of the Yonsei Memory Project. This memory project uses art and storytelling to connect World War II era incarceration Japanese American community with current struggles for justice. Her poetry has been nominated for a Northern California Book Award and her work has appeared in the New York Times, Vogue, and American Poetry Review. Currently, Bryn is an assistant professor of creative writing and English at California State University, Fresno, located, of course, on Yokut's land. This conversation was great fun and is occasionally or often quite nerdy. Please enjoy my conversation with Bryn Saito and Baker will take us there. Fresno's back. Um, all right. So, Bryn, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Well, I like to eat in my home a lot <laughs> these days. Um, I, I That question actually really made me think. I realized I haven't been um, going out much or eating out much at all. We've just been doing a lot of cooking with, with the pandemic. And when we do eat out, we'll get takeout from wasabi because it's close <laughs> to me. It's like nearly near my house. Um, and get sort of get our Japanese food, our sushi fix. Um, but before that, actually, your question made me think about food trucks. Like, I really miss. Like, I used to love to go to like Gazebo Gardens and and do the food trucks or up by is it Enzo's Enzo's Table. Mm-hmm. Like, I know they got some food trucks going on there. Um, so that was always just sort of a the first one of the first things too that came to my mind was missing those spaces and and Fresno food trucks. <laughs> I know. And I recently rewatched that movie Chef, which is kind of a movie that's about really about uh, Roy Choi, um, but it's you know told through this other character. Um, and at the end of the movie, or what, towards the end of the movie, where they're in that place in uh, the West Side, I don't know where they are exactly, but somewhere along the, the coast where they're at, there's all those food trucks and there's just mobs of people. And I'm just like, when, when are we going to get that again? Like yeah. I, it's, it's, it's makes me sad to think about it. Cause that's one of the most fun things, uh, waiting, you know, waiting with all those people for your food and wandering between the food trucks and your choices. So yeah, it's, uh, it's almost sad to think about, you know, a little bit, but, um, what are your, what are some, what are some highlights of the food trucks in town? What do you, do you have some favorites or do you just sam- sample wherever you are? I don't, I can't even remember that. I just eat everything. <laughs> yeah. So I can't name any, I guess, unfortunately I can't name any off the top of my head, but, um, but yeah, I just love that experience. It's a very California thing. It feels like to me when I was living on the East coast. Um, yeah, you just, it, the, the winters or, you know, you just don't get this sort of like year round outdoor food stuff happening that you get like in Fresno and the central Valley. So yeah. East coast is overrated. It's too cold. Can't do anything outside. Um, or you're sweating all day long. So I don't, I don't like either of those options. Very true. Yeah, yeah no, I, there's, a, there's some good food trucks, but like you, I, I don't, you know, the names don't latch on. I think my, the favorite one that I had was I had so there's a food truck that had like, like this kind of like fusion take on lumpia, which was just like, Oh my gosh. You know, and I had it, I'm sure at Tioga, um, and so, yeah, I love food trucks because I think they can be nimble in how they approach their menu. 
Yeah. The way that if you have a restaurant with serious overhead and you got to plan all these things that you just can't be. So hopefully, mm-hmm. I mean, I know people have been supporting them or trying to, and they're parked mm-hmm. around town or whatever. Yeah. Um, so we're going to talk a lot about poetry today, which is one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, but before we get too deep into poetry, let's talk about something else that um, I, I, you know, it's something that I, I, I can't say that I've written a letter in a long time, mm-hmm. um, but uh, I had this uh, really uh, sweet girlfriend in college that had a typewriter um, and she would, she would literally type out letters to me and then mail them. And it's, it's, it, it feels kind of antiquated now, which is funny because, you know, it's something that was just normal 20, I mean, is it 20 years ago? I don't know. I mean, it, it feels like it's something that uh, is in the recent past, but it feels antiquated. So my question to you is, and and this is obviously a loaded question, uh, should we mourn the lost art of letter writing? Or is it something that uh, we should just let go of, like we let go of, I don't know, the telegraph? I know. Technology has changed so fast these days. Yeah, I love letter writing and um, I love handwriting too. Like I've been every once in a while, I'll catch a story about how writing by hand can help with creativity. There's the embodiedness of handwriting. Um, I miss that a lot. And a lot of my poems will begin as, as letters, like sort of this epistolary mode, like, dear you, I want to tell you something or I have something to express to you. And I did a, um, project with some other poets, a sort of a letter writing project recently where we wrote kind of poem poem letters to one another. Um, and I just love the the kind of intentionality and the space you have to be in, yeah, to write a letter versus an email or a text or a, something else that feels very fast these days. Letters just slow us down in a beautiful way. It seems like we're deconstructing even more because, you know, I use uh with some of my friends who work in the tech world, we use Slack to communicate, which is essentially like, <laughs> it's like, it's, you know, it's like a message board or not a message, like a chat room almost. And it seems like we're deacons. I mean, if you look at emails today, they're like, they can be single lines. Um, I, some people still have the format of like a greeting and a, uh, what is it called? The end of goodbye or something. Um, but you know, those, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know if kids are learning that that is a necessary formatting. I don't know. What, I mean, I don't know. What, 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 where is the logical conclusion of all of this going? You know, are we just losing our ability to, you know, a lot of this actually at its core is a question about language and how we use it in evolving versus like, kind of this, you know, I'm a teacher. So like this prescriptivism that I have in my inner being that wants them to understand what that colon means. But at the same time, I I don't, you know, I mean, how useful is it? Should we try to force this on kids today or just say, you know what, let language go where it goes? That's a huge, huge, big question. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's always fascinating to me to think about the leap from oral culture to written culture, like writing itself, right, is a was a technological kind of revolution, and the way our brains and bodies changed because suddenly we had tablets of of knowledge that we could store. We didn't have everything in our mind. We didn't sing songs to each other to carry knowledge forward, and 
And now we have the sort of the cloud and the internet and um, in a way that the space of the infinite, the scroll is back because of, you know, these technologies, the eight and a half by 11 page is, is you know, no longer kind of, a, now we have this sort of infinite electronic scroll and then the tweet and yeah, all these things are, are shaping poetry too. A lot of my young students come, younger students come to poetry first through Instagram poets and these very bite-sized poems for better and for worse, right? It's like, that's a very particular kind of form. Um, and that's their gateway into poetry, which is lovely because then they they want to learn more. Um, but then we're, they're confronted with these longer poems that you, you know, a little bit more complex than like the tweet length, or the Instagram length. Um, so yeah, do you, think, like, do you think the length kind of necessitates structure? Is that when structure starts to come in? Like, you know, it's like if you're an amateur writer and you want to sit down and write a novel, you're quickly confronted with the fact that like, oh God, I have to have some level of organization. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, length form is dictated by, yeah, so many different things, I think. And for a long time, you know, when I was coming up as a, coming up as a poet, the eight and a half by 11 page was kind of the our our template um and now with new technologies and different things we see on our screen it's yeah different kinds of templates available for poets so it's it's it'll be fascinating really to see yeah like your question of what what is language gonna do you know over these next 10 years 20 years 50 years how how is it all gonna look who knows yeah yeah I kind of take a systems approach to it like where I think about like it's good that we have prescriptivists, you know, it's good that we have, you know, I, I love that. Uh, I don't know where she was an editor at, but she wrote a book called the comma queen. Um, and I don't know if she's an editor at the New Yorker or something, but just those, like those really particular editors that are asking you to unpack what you mean and why you're using that word or that punctuation there. Like I, like we need those super anal retentive people in our lives to demand clarity from us. But at the same time, um, you know, when like looking at like Anthony Cody's book, um, you know, we need people to like chop up and deconstruct language. Um, and it's, it's just, I think it's, it's not a balanced thing. It's just allowing these two forces to push against each other. That like maybe that. makes it slow. I don't know. Yeah. I like the tension that you're kind of expressing there. Yeah. The creative tension. Yeah. That happens when you have these different systems, these different sort of ways of knowing different ontologies really, and kind of epistemologies sort of coming into contact. I like that push against each other. Yeah. How do you process when a student comes into your poetry classroom or workshop and brings in something you've never seen before and you don't know if it resembles poetry or not, but you're trying to be understanding, you know, and say, you know, Gen Z, like, I can see that there's something here. I don't understand it, but I can see there's something. Yeah. Well, actually I was, this a little bit relates. I was Anthony's, Anthony's, uh, Anthony Cody's thesis advisor. So I worked with him pretty closely and, um, you know, we're sort of of the same generation, but he was the first student I had worked with um, that super, as you know, just super pushed the boundaries of language, of the page. And it changed um, my my way of thinking and knowing and my sort of aesthetic understanding of poetry. Um, but it was, it was, it was also a, cre- it was a struggle in a creative way too, to sort of literally like he'd bring in, you know, 
huge pages or scrolls or text and image. And we'd be on the floor of my office, like looking at the different, you know, the different, like different languages he was overlaying and the images and the text. And my brain had to become something different, you know, to, to, to know the work and to comment on it and to be with it. And um, so it's super exciting that his, his first book is getting, you know, so much awesome recognition and, and just, this was only like last year that we were just kind of in my office talking about his thesis and wondering, yeah, is this work ever going to find a home? Like, will anyone ever, you know, who knows? I was like, yeah, I don't know. It's, this is, it's, it's pushing the boundaries. And so that the, the field of contemporary poetry is really responding, obviously. Um, that's super, that's really exciting, I think. Yeah. And I, you know, uh, we don't have to make this the Anthony Cody podcast, but I mean, it's interesting, you know, and this, his work is just kind of a launching point for a discussion about like, you know, what, what are sources, what are, you know, how do, how do, you know, actually how the words look on a page, you know, like the visual elements of it, you know, because I think, you know, if, if I think about like early poems, right, you know, if I think about the Iliad or something, you know, or, or something spoken, um, and then I think about this kind of slow step we, we're getting to where, you know, it's about how the poem appears on the text. And it, it seems interesting. It seems like the boundaries are increasing, but then there comes that question, right? When the boundaries are vague, how do you define the, the activity that you're doing, right? Yeah. And that's, that seems to be the trick. So how do you think about yeah. that? Yeah, I think over time, that's been a been a big question, you know, when you had experimental poetry, you know, come into the come into play in the 60s and 70s and the avant garde, right, advanced guard kind of pushing the envelope of, um, but I always think the poem, the poem is unique, because Edward Hirsch talks about this in an essay, it's the one form that sort of is, is in the in between space between like visual art, and music and prose, you know, cause there's always a visual comp, you know, you have the, the poem on the page with the stanzas and the poet being able to sort of chisel away at language and create like a visual experience on the page. And you also have the performance of it, which is musical and, you know, it relies on rhythm and rhyme and all these things. So it's got a kind of musical score quality. And then, of course, you have just language, you know, building blocks of language. So I think poem has always been unique like that, where there's been a visual and a musical component to, to analyzing a poem. And I think experimental poets just really push that in both in, in, in those different directions. They really exploit that in a, in a cool way, like really amplifying the visual or the sonic and reminding us that, you know, we're in this these other fields at the same time. Um, but that'll always be a question, you know, who, who determines what counts as poetry? Who are the gatekeepers? And what is that, you know, what are the different power structures, right, in play there? Um, how are they being broken open? Um, so that'll be an ongoing question for us, I think, as poets. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And it's uh, one that obviously involves power and, uh, institutions and you know certain poets that have sway um i want to talk about uh, your work um i 
I've, I've read two of your collections and they're just absolutely wonderful. And I um, come from a religious background, uh, grew, grew up that way. And, you know, I, I have like a kind of like when a shark uh, senses blood in water, like I, when I see kind of religious language, like I just kind of, you know, my eyes open up uh, and, um, you know, I, in reading your books, I, I kind of came across these words that, you know, I'd known from other places, right? And, you know, words are funny in that, you know, they can mean something in, in every different place. And that's, and that's actually interesting because I, you know, my background is studying religion and um, <laughs> I've done, done large translations of different parts of the Christian Bible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the, one of the, uh, one of the, the no-nos when you're doing translation is, when you look in a dictionary, and let's say you're translating the Greek New Testament, for example, when you look in the dictionary, you see one word, and then you see a one-word definition of that word, you know you have a problem, right? Uh, because <laughs> one word doesn't equal another word, um, and it depends on where it's used and how it's used, right? Um, and so I want to ask you about some of the words that I saw and what they mean to you. Mm. Um, and, but first, before we go there, um, are poems uh, kind of prayers to you, in a, mm-hmm. whether in a secular or religious sense? Um, we talked about it, they're epis, a, a kind of epistle, you know, you sometimes look at them as epistles, um, which again is another one of those uh, religious words. Um, how, do you, how do you view po- the kind of religious dimension to poetry and yeah. poems, prayers? Yeah, that's a great insight that you were picking up on that language. I too was raised in both Christian and Buddhist sort of cosmologies, like at the same time, which was cool. But I was pretty steeped in, in both, just from my my different my parents, um, them coming from those different um, religious backgrounds. So I was always, yeah, fascinated by religion and kind of grew up. Um, listening to a lot of Buddhist, you know, incantations and chanting and also Christian prayers and hymns and um, the biblical language, just I was raised in that. So I think it was, wasn't even intentional, right? It just kind of came out in the book. Um, And I do, yeah, I liked, I think poems, some of my poems are prayers um, and going back to just the original, some of the roots of poetry in prayer, the psalm, you know, um, songs as well. And, and these space poetry is really born in these communal spaces of mourning um, and praise, like kind of coming together and mourning and praising. And a lot of kind of poetry comes from those spaces, those ancient spaces of praying together and praising and the eulogy and the elegies, you know, all these forms. Um, so I think a lot of my poems do, do kind of track on that prayer level. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm about to give a very niche uh, anecdote <laughs> to lead to this next question, but it is what it is. Um, uh, there's this great film by uh, Terrence Malick called The Tree of Life. It had Brad Pitt and uh, yeah. Jessica Chastain, I think. Um, and it was set in like the 50s in um, uh, Texas. And I, I remember reading uh, Roger Ebert, as I think a few years before he died, he, he reviewed that movie and he talked about how it kind of created this spiritual dimension 
uh, to his upbringing because it was just, you know, it, it, it gave this like place. And if you've ever been to that part of Texas, it's, it don't feel spiritual. <laughs> it feels hot, swampy, and, uh, very, uh, conservative. Um, but it, uh, I think good art has a way of like making this familiar kind of strange, but also beautiful. And to use one of your words, kind of give this kind of incarnational or eminence mm. to your environment. Um, and I got that feeling in reading your poetry, uh, specifically about the stuff you wrote about the valley. Um, I just kind of, I, I, I think that's part of what, at least for me, makes poetry come alive is when I, when I feel a sense of place. Um, and I feel a sense of like a spiritual dimension in that place that makes mm -hmm. it active. You know, like I was in um, one of the road trips I took during pandemic to stay away from people was to Sedona, uh, Arizona. And that place kind of has that feeling too. But I think it's misleading because I think every place does. And I think it's just where you become home. So you mm -hmm. can you talk a, a little bit about uh, those words and um, how you how you look at the land where you live? Yeah, I think I'm with you on the spiritual dimension of place. I also believe that, yeah, if you can attune and you can listen to a place, you can hear the stories. Yeah, you can hear the environment. You can sort of connect to that and then write, you know, write from that. And um, yeah, I remember thinking about imminence in that way, like a, like everything is kind of inhabited by spirit or you know, there's sort of, you know, everything has a kind of an like an anim, animate, anim, is animated by a certain kind of energy. And that comes a little bit also too from, I guess, like animism, like in, in Buddhist and Shinto cultures in Japan, this sort of belief that um, the world is, is animated by the spirit energy all around us. Um, I, and, so not to interrupt you, but I just <laughs> love the idea that, um, that uh, through what's her name, uh, Kondo, She's brought Shintoism to mainstream America without yeah. them realizing that that's what <laughs> that's what it is. And I, when exactly. I, I mean, very like conservative religious family members that are like, "Does this give me joy?" <laughs> I'm like, "Do I say anything?" No. Do you just you just practice your Shintoism <laughs> in your house? Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. No. Totally. That's it. Right. It's it is. It's very much. <laughs> Um, yeah, versus, right, like you, you're kind of alluding to versus transcendence, right, or versus this idea that the holy or the spiritual is beyond me, and right, right. Um, that it's separate from me, but there's sort of this belief in non-dualism, right, everything's kind of in inherently connected, and yeah, I think some of my writing does, does kind of come from that, that, that space, yeah. Yeah. So um, we're going to get into one of my favorite sections uh, called overrated versus underrated. I'll throw some topics out at you and you can tell me whether you think they're uh, overrated or underrated. I kind of have a list of different topics, some, some poets that I'm curious your thoughts about, some food and some different things. Uh, we'll start with uh, an easy one, which is uh, the Bay Area weather, overrated <laughs> or underrated. <laughs> Bay Area weather. Um, oh my gosh, having lived in the Bay for so long. I, I would say overrated. That was, oh gosh, it just was so cold all the time for me. Having and been that's some funny thing when you're from the Valley and you go there, yeah, you think you're going to love it. But I lived, when I lived there, I lived in like the part of town near Daly city. And yeah. so I was just living in a fog pit 
and every day was the same. (laughs) I thought I was going to love it, but by the end of it, I was clamoring for Southern California sun. Same. Yeah, it was tough. And then you have to really, seasons are different up there, microclimates, like, Again, having been raised in Fresno, I was like, where's that summer heat when, you know, we can be up at, you know, 8 p.m. and it's 80 degrees and we're just outside and that never happens in the Bay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that overrated message needs to get sent to all the people that are paying $6,000 a month for a studio apartment. Yeah. A little overrated. (laughs) Um, Next one, uh, Robert Robinson Jeffers. Oh gosh. I loved Jeffers. I'd say underrated. Um, I remember just really loving his poems um, and kind of coming, you know, coming into eco poetry through his work. There's so many awesome, amazing uh, contemporary eco poets, I think that aren't as well known, but Jeffers was my entryway into thinking about, gosh, the way he described those, those Monterey shores and the the violence of the sea and the rocks that it just enchanted me at a young age yeah what do you make of the criticism of jeffers and some of maybe his ideas about gender or the different things i know that he's you know out of favor in some circles yeah a lot of people are these days (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i don't i know like sort of vaguely about those so i'd have to i'd have to do a little bit of research and get back to you yeah i I mean i you just again going back to place when you read him you feel carmel by the sea you know and i think it it's just so powerful i actually haven't been to his uh his uh house whatever it's called the it's got a famous stone thing that he built. I don't remember what it's called, but uh, yeah, he's yeah, in tour house. Yeah, the tour maybe tour house. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it is. All right, uh, next one um, for someone that works at Fresno State uh, Doghouse Grill. Overrated or underrated? Well, I'd have to. I've never been. So, so, <laughs> so overrated. <laughs> <laughs> so overrated. I don't know. Should I go? Is this, I, I don't mean, know. I don't think so. It. I mean, yeah. maybe. I don't know. I don't yeah. want to. I don't want to poo on it. It's just, yeah. It's like when I first moved here, and we would go there. Like, what? What? Where? There's so many people here. And it took us like 20 minutes to park. I was like, where are we going? Like, I only wait for food in the Bay Area. I don't wait for food here. Like, <laughs> when I'm here, I get food whenever I want it. And uh, so, anyway, I was just. Um, all right. Next one. Uh, the poetry of Adrian Rich. Um, yeah, I love Adrian Rich, I guess underrated. Um, she was also, she was another poet that was one of my early kind of, oh my gosh, look at what poet, what, look at what words can do. I want to do this the way she was writing about her life and kind of doing this political work with the poems. Um, her book, um, what is found there notebooks on politics and poetry was a big one for me 20 years ago um kind of a bit of a poetry bible for me reading those essays on politics and poetry so yeah i love her do you think enough people in california know her as kind of a california poet or or do you think that Mm -hmm. that world is um you know we don't know as much about her I don't really know. It's a good, I mean, what do you think? I have, I have no idea. Cause I know like, you know, my students know about her in part because of the work Connie Corinne Clegg Hales has done at Fresno State, Professor Hales, Connie Hales, the poet. I know she would teach uh, Audrey and Rich's work a lot. So I know um, my students are aware. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Next one. Um, having a co-writer. 
underrated or overrated? Oh, co-writer. Yeah, I love that. I guess underrated. I think more people should do collaborative poem making. It's just, it's... Isn't it hard though? I mean, it's, very it's hard. Like it, it seems like a challenge, like yeah. a big challenge. It's much easier to just sit by yourself and write, right? Yeah, especially poetry. I think I always saw it as this like solitary act that was just me and my world and my feelings. And sometimes it is that for me, but I think co-writing with Tracy Brimhall, she's the person I co-write, poet I co-write with, um, it kind of broke down my ego a little bit, sort of allowed these other voices in and just allowed us to kind of play with language. She'd write a stanza, I'd write a stanza, or she'd write a line, I'd write a line back and forth. And it just, it just kind of reacquainted me with the surprise, you know, the surprise element of poetry. Um, so it's been really rich, yeah, doing that. How do you think it changes your poetry versus the poetry you produce by yourself? Um, yeah, how does it change my poetry? It it makes me listen more, I think. It kind of helps me get me out out of the way of myself. Like I'll when I sit down to write a poem, I'll I'll draw on other language or other disciplines or I'll read a lot. Like I'll sort of it's like I'm collaborating with the books on my shelf and I'm reading and I'm pulling from research on the nervous system or you know, I'm sort of letting these other voices into my process. And, and I think that just sort of enriches, yeah, the poem. Got it. All right, next one, I've got two more. Um, Neo-formalism, underrated or overrated? Neo-formalism, what exactly do you, this new, the new sort of push into formal poetic? Bring back, poem, bring yeah. back structure to poems, the mm -hmm. idea that like, you know, free verse has brought decay to poetry. As a, a oh, this thinking, yes, yes, yeah. yes. Well, that's a good question because I think I'm supposed to give a talk on neoformalism. Well, um, let's hammer it out right now. How do you really feel? <laughs> I know. I'm, you know, they want me to have a conversation with an, another poet about the ballad, actually, the ballad form. Um, but in this context of like, um, let's learn about form. And it feels like the other sub subtext is like, let's bring back form yeah free verse like let's let's like our students should be learning more about form or formal poetry and um i have okay yeah here here are some feelings i have <laughs> like yeah i say it's like i like studying form with my students a lot um in part because it i like doing a sort of like sociological or socio-historical um kind of contextualization of forms. Like I'm really interested in like, okay, where did the, why did the sonnet happen? Like, how was it related to the, the song and um, how did it get swept up? We had it move from Italy to, to England and, um, or like forms like, um, like the huzzle, the Persian huzzle, again, rooted in song and rooted in sort of these communal practices. Um, the ballad, right, rooted in storytelling, and again, these communal narratives being circulated, and um, so a lot of these forms for me are 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 connect. I've found you know are connected to community and community practices, and that's interesting to me. Um, and in that sense, I like the idea of sort of bringing back forms as a way to 
to build maybe community ritual spaces around poetry again, like taking it out of the sort of the academy or out of the solitary practice of the poem was published in the journal and then we all praise the poet. And then, um, but I like the way some of these forms are really connected back to oral culture. Um, the Korean Sijo, like even across cultures, right? Um, that's interesting to me. And then I, I don't know, free verse, it's like free verse is never really free. And there's always formal elements to free verse. There's always patterns and um, conventions that free verse poets use and different kinds of free verse, diff different forms of free verse, you know. So the kind of dichotomy, free verse versus form, it's, it's a little bit like questionable to me. Like they sort of, um, they can be a little bit of a false category. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's a complicated one. And yeah. I, you know, I, I think that forms emerge naturally, of course, um, as people communicate. I yeah. think the part of the thing uh, and resistance to it is this idea that, you know, when, when certain groups with power puts, a, you know, to, in a top-down way, try and enforce things, then you question, well, yeah. If you have to enforce it, then there must be a problem here, right? Yeah, I agree. People will use whatever tool best communicates their message, right? I don't know. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It's always, language is always tied to power. Yeah, it's like, who is claiming that we should be writing in a certain way? And who is, you know, what, who are the voices saying like, oh, these poets, they're, they're not, they're, they're not real poets because they're not doing it like me. And and is this racialized and is it genderized? Yeah, are all these different kind of, yeah, markers present too in those claims? So yeah, tricky stuff. Yeah. Last one in the overrated versus underrated <laughs> section. And that is uh, the poetry of Lassen Inada. Oh yeah, good one. I guess underrated. Um, I'd love for more folks to know about Lassen Fusau Inada's work. Um, Lassen, somebody like Lassen, Inada and, you know, Shirley Ann Williams. And um, they often, I mean, they were, yeah, they were just amazing Fresno poets, right? Just like Phil Levine and Juan Felipe Herrera and Gary Soto and Sony's other folks that came out of the Valley. Um, but Lawson, you know, especially as a Japanese American poet, he was somebody who paved a path for, for the, those of us, you know, that came after him, that come after him especially in writing about the incarceration of Japanese Americans and his experience and living through that and surviving that he was a model to me. Yeah. In that way. Uh, on the camps question, um, you know, I've uh, recently, I was talking with someone um, about uh, we were talking about farm labor in California uh, on another podcast and, you know, this, uh, you know, how before the Bracero program, uh, a lot of farm labor um, was Japanese Americans or, you know, uh, people of Asian descent. Um, and um, the person I was talking to um, wanted to specifically use the word concentration camp mm -hmm. um, to describe the camps and how the word internment or these different words are ways of, um, you know, through language trying to reduce, uh, you know, reduce what happened. Uh, what do you think about using the word uh, yeah. concentration camp to describe what happened to Japanese Americans during World War II? 
I think it's accurate. You know, it's what the government used. <laughs> it's what the government was using. Um, so again, it was a descriptor. They they called them <laughs> concentration camps. Um, but then this euphemism of detentions, you know, assembly centers and um, internment and um, the euphemisms sort of become, you know, popular, you know, um, for very, you know, obvious various reasons. Um, I think high but, school textbooks have internment camp is the word. That yeah, internment. Yeah. Yeah. So we're in as a community where we've moved away from internment camp and either to concentration camp or um, prison camp, incarc incarceration, just which is just more accurate. They were prisons and um, spaces of incarceration, spaces of indefinite, you know, detention, which was a is a form of torture, really, to be detained like that indefinitely. Um, so I think there's more. Um, that's getting more traction, kind of calling, naming them for what, what they really are. Um, but yeah, I think, unfortunately, um, the, the story of the Japanese American car, uh, incarceration is, is undertaught, right? In schools, we get that like one pair, like so many, right? Of yeah. these really important like struggles um, against oppression, they get one paragraph in the history book. So, I mean, that feels like ground zero for um, just changing some of this language and, and, getting those stories out there for folks at a, so folks at a young age, just, just understand what those were, you know, they were prisons. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, and this is something that I uh, push to promote my own work for a moment, my history of California podcast, I promote this all the time, which is, I think we need to teach California history later in uh, childhood development because in fourth grade, you're not ready for the mission system internment, yeah. The eugenics movement in California, all of these things are not developmentally appropriate for 10-year-olds. Right. Um, but if if you moved it to a, a later grade, you made it part of 12th grade or, you know, some mm -hmm. part of high school, mm -hmm. uh, kids might be better equipped to, you know, I mean, that would be such an interesting thing, right? If all 12th graders in California had to go visit, uh, you know, the desert camps, <laughs> like that would yeah. be, you know, that would have a, such a huge impact in the way people view California history and, and like a reverence and respect for people that, you know, went through these things. I, you know, it's just, it's an interesting question and in thinking about how to uh, teach this stuff appropriately in schools mm. is a challenge. Mm -hmm. and I, I wrestle with it constantly. That's a good point. Yeah. Cause if, I mean, they're traumatic stories. <laughs> they're like brutal right. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's a great point. Developmentally, when is, when is a young person sort of able to take that in? That's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about um, Fresno. Um, so Poetry comes out of all places. It comes out of just human beings in general. Um, but it, sometimes it feels like good poetry comes out of uh, hard times or hard places. Um, and, you know, Fresno, there's a lot of great poetry um, that has come out of Fresno. Um, what do you attribute that to? Um, do you think it's the environment? Um, I mean, obviously, you know, there's this kind of, uh, you know, this founders or like, you know, Phil Levine coming to Fresno and kind of founding a school to really promote things. But really, I mean, he didn't, he wasn't, he didn't have a farm. He wasn't breeding poets, you know, <laughs> there's people coming to learn and maybe honing their skills, but uh, 
yeah, he didn't give birth to all of these great poets personally. Um, so, um, so what do you what what do you think makes Fresno unique in terms of the poetry that comes from it? Yeah, Fresno's God. It's always had a real sense of of community, um, and a lot of that community, yeah, built around labor and struggle, and really community that came out of necessity yeah, to survive and. There's a certain ethic, I think, that um, I notice it in the poetry communities now and in my students and working in community settings. People do really champion each other and mentor each other. Um, and yeah, I see that with like Juan Felipe Herrera and working, you know, with, in the Fresno State Poet Laureate Lab Visual Words Studio with our students. and. It's like National Poet Laureate Fresno's had two, right? Yeah, Juan Felipe and and Phil Levine and 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 they they folks like that have shown up for community and and I yeah when I was living in like you know New York or San Francisco, um, different kinds like different kinds of community, but I think you know Fresno's just a smaller town where you have that sense of familiarity with each other and you're connecting, you're all going to the same readings. It's not these, you know, it's not New York where everyone's doing something different on a Monday night. It's like, well, there's one reading here tonight and we're all going to be there in Fresno. And um, so just something about this place that has maybe fostered some of that, um, that sense of coming together and, and championing each other as poets and artists. Um, and then, yeah, I think knowing that folks like Shirley Ann Williams and Lawson Fusawi Nada, um, when, um, Wendy Rose, like some of these folks who just made it, made a huge name for themselves nationally, internationally, that they were, were here, you know, they were, they were raised here, they were working here, they were building their families here. I think for me as a young poet, that always made me hopeful, like, like, oh, really? Someone from Fresno, like, became a poet laureate? Like, oh, okay. Like, like it's kind of in my mind. And, you know, I move through the world like, oh, Fresno. And, you know, when I travel to other states or even abroad, it's like, oh, I'm a poet from Fresno. It's like, oh, you're a poet from Fresno. Do you know this poet, that poet, this poet? You know, it's like Fresno is just known for that, um, which has maybe continued to foster that. But yeah, and I see my students, you know, the young folks here, they're just, man, they just, they work so hard in so many ways. Um, and everything just feels meaningful, like very meaningful when they get that first poem published. They don't take anything for granted, you know, and um, it's different than some of the other student communities, you know, I've worked with through my life or communities I've been a part of where, yeah, I've been in these, I've been in other classrooms where, you could just feel the entitlements or, you know, you could some of those, <laughs> like some of my classrooms where I was a student or the yeah. spaces I taught where it's like, oh, I just, you know, I'm just waiting to get my acceptance, you know, from poetry magazine or, you know, just like, just the sense of like, it's going to happen for me. Cause I, you know, I'm, that's what, that's what my life has been about. And, um, so here I, yeah, here I've noticed, I don't, I don't get that that drench of <laughs> entitlement as much when I walk into these learning spaces it more just feels like, yeah, we're hustling, we're hungry, we're ready, you know, like we're just, it's just all very meaningful. Yeah. Well, that leads very naturally to talking about MFA programs. 
Um, so there's a lot of them now, <laughs> as you well know. Yeah. Um, and there's there's folks that wonder about the impact of um, having poets or a large uh, portion of the professional poets um, coming from academic institutions versus just, you know, scrawling stuff on a piece of paper in a bar in Greenwich yeah. Village or whatever, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, I think the Coen brothers captured kind of the, you know, the, the beauty and the stupidity of kind of like this indie culture and in the Inside Lewin Davis movie. Um, but I think it definitely speaks to this kind of vagabondness that poets, you know, had at one point in American history and, you know, kind of the Walt Whitman wandering around with a giant beard type of image. Um, but now that it's kind of professionalized in a certain way, there's probably advantages and disadvantages um, to that, right? You know, you might, I, I don't know if you want to say there's better poetry or, or maybe people are getting better training. So how do you look at that? Um, what are some of the advantages and disadvantages to these MFA programs being everywhere? Yeah, I think you're right. It is a tricky, it's a kind of a complex thing. I mean, the university as an institution um, it's traditionally, right, it's a very hierarchical, conservative space of, of power and lack of access. And um, so those spaces in their, in their kind of founding, their colonial spaces, you know, the American, the universities are, they're not, they weren't built, you know, to sort of be these spaces of kind of communal joy and, and like diversity and diversity of expression. Um, so yeah, I wrestle with that. That's like very much true. Um, I also, yeah, I'm somebody who went to an MFA, I teach in an MFA and I also have seen yeah, the power of the MFA, especially when you had really great faculty who were building those bridges between community spaces and public spaces and the university, those who were keeping kind of one foot in and one foot in this other cool thing. Um, those who were just kind of interrogating the structures and while, while being a part of it, you know, sort of trying to keep a healthy kind of critical eye on that whole venture. Um, and especially programs who are really invested in making it affordable, you know, making it um, a place of access, trying to provide scholarship monies or funding, I think that's all great, you know, for students, especially if you can be a student, get funding, you know, come to a place for a few years and just work on your craft. Um, all great. Yeah. If you can have that kind of access to, to this, to a space, all really wonderful. Um, but I think it does feel like, I, I really think, you know, I wonder about the space of the commons, the kind of commons out there, these, these other more informal public collective spaces for artists and poets and writers and dreamers um, as we kind of see the more kind of this corporatization or professionalization of, of spaces and um, with, I don't know, probably just various economic, you know, engines kind of driving all of this. It's like, what happened to, what happens to the commons or these, spaces where we gather just super informally as artists and makers um, without the goal of trying to sell each other anything or Instagramming anything or like promoting ourselves. Like just, I think of like the, the North Beach cafes during the beat movement or something, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
like, where are those spaces, you know, what will that look like after the pandemic? How do we redevelop that, that, that feeling of a commons for artists um, up again? I don't know. Yeah. I tried to imbibe that. There was one uh, early on because I, I I went to San Francisco State for my undergraduate, and I took like an early literature class and read Howell and a bunch of stuff. And they're like, "This is this is where it comes from." And I was like, "Oh, <laughs> that's so cool!" And so like there was a week where you know like every other day I would put put a bathrobe on and then go to North Beach and just like waddle around to try to imbibe the <laughs> the kind of you know the the culture of that it didn't really work that well most people you know it, it's funny you'll they'll even look at you if you're wearing a bathrobe they won't look at you if you're naked in san francisco but they'll look at you if you're wearing a bathrobe um <laughs> but in any case i um the other the other part that i think about is you know for a lot of it seems like a lot of poets today like of course, you would you would want to live off your writing, but a lot of poets, you know, know that they're trying to get an academic job, and so uh, the question becomes like, how does that influence your writing, right? And then thinking about these, you know, power relationships, and mm -hmm. do we need more, uh, you know, diesel mechanic bivocational poets? You know, do we need yeah. these mm -hmm. people that are in these uh, kind of more commons jobs? Uh, that are also writing poetry um, yeah. and so that's the thing that i think about is like um, should we be worried that a lot of major poets are also academics right yeah i think we should <laughs> i think everybody yeah and i really i mean that i think everybody should be writing poetry like everybody like that's one of my kind of one of my radical beliefs is like we're all we all are kind of we all have the potential to sort of be artists and be writers and um, and doing writing workshops like in community, like with the Japanese American community, with some of my elders, with my parents who like, ugh, they never wanted to write poetry. And I sat them down. I was like, we're doing a writing exercise together, <laughs> mom and dad. And, you know, this was, and, and my gosh, it just opened, you know, just opened so much up. Um, so I love the idea of just, Fine. Yeah. Bringing poetry to community, having everybody writing poems. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's interesting things that are happening these days. And I think poetry, um, you know, is, is something, I don't know if it had a, a low point, but it feels like it's, it's a, a big part of our culture right now um, in interesting ways. And that's probably because of the uh, growth in, uh, you know, publishing diverse voices and, all of the things that the internet has enabled, you know, I think there is this kind of like burgeoning of these things that maybe were considered high culture that are becoming more, you know, like I'm a, I'm a super chess nerd and the pandemic has made chess into something cool. And yeah. they, they have these uh, YouTube streamers uh, that stream chess matches. And I'm looking down at the thing and there's like 40,000 people watching. I'm like, before the pandemic, there was just me and three other people watching, but now there's 40,000 people watching chess. And I, you know, I, I so I have a, I have very high hopes uh, yeah. for uh, poetry becoming a central part of our culture. And I think it's important. I don't think, I don't think uh, you have a developed society that doesn't have a place for poetry. I think, yeah. you know, cause then you, the society doesn't have a voice, right? Um, and as much as, you know, much money as Taylor Swift makes, you know, I don't, I don't want her to be the voice, you know what I mean? So. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. I love that. So let's finish with books. Um, we always finish with books. 
what are a few uh, recommendations you have for the audience? It could be poetry or nonfiction or just really anything that you've found interesting. Yeah, I just thought I'd bring out my stack that I by my bedside here. I'm reading um, a book of poems by John Murillo called Con Contemporary American Poetry with a K. Contemporary with a K. Oh, <laughs> American okay. Poetry. This just came out recently and is, I think, being nominated for a bunch of stuff. And um, yeah, this was great. Like, I've been sitting on my shelf for a while. I finally picked it up and started reading it. Um, so, John Murillo, and then also reading um, Saidia Hartman's book, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, Intimate Histories of Riotous Black Girls, Troublesome Women, and Queer Radicals. Um, and it's basically a history. It's like a history of uh, queer women in Philadelphia and their survival and their joy and their intimacy. Um, but it's written, it's in a very literary style. So um, I love books that kind of, you know, it's like she's bringing the tools of a novelist to this history and bringing their lives alive. Um, and reading some Paul Ceylon. The other thing I wanted to, I guess, uh, lift up and mention was uh, Lee Herrick. Lee Herrick and Leah Silvaeus's book, The World I Leave You, the anthology of Asian American poets on faith and spirit. Um, this was just, kind of one of my my poetry bibles over the past few months and especially now i think with um all of the surfacing of violence you know against uh, the asian and american community in the past couple of weeks um it's just a wonderful anthology to to kind of it's a balm for the soul it's been really beautiful to read the voices of my colleagues and fellow aapi poets um on faith and spirit um and of course edited by one of our local poet heroes, Lee Herricks. So another beautiful book. Yeah. Yeah. I've, um, I've also been thinking about that recently after, you know, uh, that horrible attack in Atlanta and someone who I've been reading, not because of that, but just for other reasons uh, is Erica Lee, um, who's got a bunch of great books. The one I'm reading currently is called Angel Island. Um, mm -hmm. And it's about uh, kind of immigration into the Bay area and oh my gosh, like th those books are just so powerful. And I think there's a lot of great, you know, reading that people should do. Like, you know, I, I, you can read a bunch of New York Times articles or you can read a big fat history of xenophobia, which I think would be <laughs> probably beneficial, more beneficial than some articles, you know, than scrolling through your Instagram or whatever to find yeah. some find something. But uh, yeah, there's been a lot of great work on on those kinds of uh, topics. And uh, yeah, oh, you Erica, know what? Erica Lee is a fan. I'm a big fan of Erica Lee. I think I want to mention, yeah, one more in that vein, another book that just came out, Mise Radicals. Um, this is a book by Diane Fugino. And yeah, if someone's, if folks are looking for a way to ground, to ground into kind of deep Asian American history, especially this kind of radical history of, of the activists of the 60s who were building these solidarities amongst cultural groups and um, thinking about visibility and civil rights for Asian Americans through poetry and art and, and ministry. Her brother was a, um, a, a priest and sort of had this very kind of social justice oriented ministry. And so the book is about both of them. And um, Mitsuye Yamada and Michael uh, Yasutake and yeah just like recalling these sort of wonderful radical histories um, in this moment and drawing on their their vision and wisdom for this time. Where can people find out uh, find more about your work uh, find your books? 
Yeah, my website, brinsido.com, um, has links to all of the books and the chapbooks and has some links to poems and stuff as well. Okay, and what are you working on these days? Not too much. <laughs> <laughs> um, I got asked actually to write a poem um, for the Asian American Writers Workshop in the wake of the violence. Um, a few of us Asian American women poets got asked to write something. So I got an assignment. And um, so I've been working on that poem <laughs> this week, which felt Do you good. value deadlines? Is that, yes. is that? Yeah, they're so great, aren't they? Yeah. How do you, how do you um, it's so hard when, you know, for me, like I have no deadlines, you know, this is just a world that I create um, when it, when the feeling comes, uh, how do you, so when you're working on uh, something without clear deadlines, what, how do you, how do you get yourself to the page? Community, friends. Yeah. I just, I try to have writing partners or a writing groups, somebody to hold me accountable, left to my own devices. I would never write anything again. <laughs> so it's like, Hey, let's check in and like next month, let's try to write a poem or send me a poem in a week or, are you working on that poem? <laughs> so, yeah. 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 We all need like, um, you know, like I, like my Apple watch is connected to my friends so they can see what I'm like meeting my exercise goals. Like we need a poetry watch. Like <laughs> did you write a poem today, Bryn? <laughs> Just like asking you on a regular basis. Uh, yeah. That would be very helpful. So yeah. anyway, um, it's been fun talking. Thanks for, uh, thanks for doing this with me. Yeah. Thanks so much, Jordan. I really appreciate this. Thanks for listening, everybody. As always, you can support this podcast either by making a financial contribution on our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash fresnosbest, or by giving us a rating and review. Both of those go a long way to help supporting the sustainability of this podcast. We'll see you next time.